Good morning. Still adjusting to the stage. I don't like being eight feet off the ground like Goliath. Uh, it's good to be here with you guys this morning um, to kind of fill you in. Some of you are wondering why Matt's not here. Um, no one's sick or anything. Um, we uh, have some good relationships with churches in the area and um, want to uh, try to support other works of God in Dayton and obviously beyond. Um, but today, uh, Matt is at a church not too far from us, actually, in Beaver Creek. It's called Alpha Baptist Church. Uh, their pastor recently retired, and I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Baptist culture, but we have this thing called pulpit supply, which honestly makes me kind of feel like a, like a cup or something. Like we're out of cups. We need to restock the supply. Um, <laughs> When a, a church is, uh, most churches in our area actually typically only have one pastor. So if he's going to be gone or he's sick or whatever, um, we kind of have a pool that we can reach into called the pulpit supply. <laughs> and uh, you fill the pulpit. Um, because if the pulpit's not full, then, well, it's empty. Um, so <laughs> he's doing that uh, specifically because their uh, pastor just retired um, and trying to just help uh, care for them in this time of transition in their life uh, as a flock. So. Um, wanted to be able to release him to be able to care for other people, and uh, so here, here I is. Um, I'm excited to preach this text this morning. Uh, yes, I get three verses as opposed to like one or half of one, um, but we're, we're clipping, all right? So with that, open up your Bibles, if you have them, to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. The title of today's sermon is Salvation Unto Good Works. We spent the past several weeks uh, working through just this, this first half of chapter 2, and I want to read it all together uh, with you this morning. So let's read. Uh, you don't have to read with me. I'll read, but just follow. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. Father, we are thankful for your goodness towards us. Father, the kindness that you have displayed towards us and that you tell us just now that you will continue to display for all eternity. Father, we're so thankful for your son. And Father, the work that he did on the cross to reconcile us in himself. Father, to tear down the wall of hostility that existed between your holy of places and us. And Father, today we pray that you would continue to help break that down, Father, as you call new people into your kingdom every day. And Father, as you illuminate your word to both those that are lost and to those that are followers of your Son. Father, we love you and we thank you for all that you're doing here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. As a pastor, I have a great privilege of having a uh, bird's eye view of particularly my flock of renovation. Um, I get to hear about things going on in people's lives that not everyone is always uh, privy to, um, for good reason, often. Um, but as a pastor, we get to, as Hebrews thirteen seventeen is going to echo for us, we have to give an account for the sheep that are in our flock. So when we give a proper account, I need to know what the, I guess, sheep supply is, right? Um, <laughs> how are you guys doing? Where are people at? And we get to hear cool stories about things that God is doing in people's lives, but at the same time, we also see a lot of the struggles that people walk through. A lot of the hurts and pains and sorrows that come with being a, a human, uh, and on top of that, being someone that would stand with Christ. And so, in doing that, we get to have lots of conversations and lots of um, 
growth happens because of that. But one of my favorite conversations that I get to have is when people come to me and they say, how do I love God? Or how do I love God more? How do I know I know God? How do I know God at all? Sometimes people would simply say, well, I know that I'm a believer, but how do I grow in my relationship with God? Now, now to be honest, these sound like somewhat simple questions, right? They sound relatively basic, at least for a believer that would say, yes, I've known God for a long time. I should know how to grow with Christ, right? But it's not always that simple. While it is foundational to the faith, it's not always necessarily easy. Um, but at the same time, God always meets us where we're at. From the beginning, God has met humans where they are at, and that is one of the great, great, great truths about Christianity, that God meets us where we are. And so the way that I start typically with most people is I would say, okay, you want to love God more? Or you want to grow in your relationship with God? Answer some questions for me. Help me see where you're at. The first question that I almost always ask is, tell me, what do you know about God? If you had to describe God to me, how would you describe God? What do you know about him? When I think about the relationships that I have in my life, if someone were to ask me about that relationship, I should, if it's a good relationship, be able to tell you about the person, right? All the way from my spouse to my parents to my brother to then just my good friends and family in Christ. I should be able to tell you something about them, right? It, it concerns me how often I talk to someone about this and they don't really know much about him. Now, gratefully, they know a lot of things that he did, they know things that God has done. They can tell you stories from the Bible, but invariably they miss who God is and what he's doing. And they don't know anything about his character. And so the second question I'll typically ask is, tell me about the gospel. What do you know about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Tell me about the good news. If there is good news for a lost world, for those that are sick and dying and hopeless and dead in their sin, what is the good news of the gospel? I found, almost without fail, that to the extent that someone knows the gospel, they know God. The gospel is the ultimate display of the character of God. If you want to know the character of God, you need to know the gospel. You see, indeed, in the Old Testament, the law defined for us first who he was, right? The law and the Old Testament shows us who God is. It tells us what's important to him, how to worship him rightly and properly, how to follow him, how to obey him, and how to please him. But the gospel is the mighty display of the glory of God. It is the display of his character. And so my encouragement to them and to you today is to know his character. But just know what God did, look through what he did to why he did it. Because the why he did it is born out of who he is. So know his character, know who he is, and know what he has done. And so with that as kind of our starting point today, I want to reach back into some context. Uh, what we've been covering the past several weeks is it sets up our text for today. How are we going to know God in the display of the gospel that we're getting ready to see in verses 8 through 10? We need to know what God has already done and where we come from. And we saw in verses 1, through three, very clearly where we were, right? You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And not only were you dead, but the things that you were doing, the things that you were passionate about, the things that you desired, whether you, you knew it or not, was the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all Christians, today, this is the last time we're going to be really talking about this passage. Don't forget where we started. If you're a believer today, verse 3 applied to you once. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Now, obviously, Paul's primary target here is Christians. When we look at the beginning of this book in chapter 1, we see that the the letter is addressed to those who are faithful followers of Christ in Ephesus. So my primary content today is for people who are faithful followers of Christ in Beaver Creek. <laughs> All right? 
That being said, I know that there are people that maybe don't follow Christ. They don't live faithfully for him, and you have not yet placed your faith and trust in him as your redeemer. We're getting ready to cover the gospel, and I have no better news to share with you today. Um, so all of this is for you. So let's talk about our context. And 4 through 7, we got to see this bright portrait that Paul paints of God's grace that stands in particularly dramatic contrast to the dark landscape of human sin in 1 through 3. And by giving believers life with Christ, raising them with Christ, and seating them with Christ in his place of victory, God has demonstrated the overwhelmingly merciful, loving, and gracious nature of his character. If you're concerned about character, look at 4 through 7. His demonstration of his character was not something that happened as a side effect of his gracious saving work, but it was the very purpose for which he did the work. He rescued those who are in Christ from the domination of the world, the devil and the flesh, so that he might demonstrate forever the overwhelmingly gracious nature of his character. I just caught you up on like four sermons, all right? That was four sermons past like four weeks. So this week, where are we going? In 2, 8 through 10, we're going to see him further define, particularly the overwhelmingly gracious goodness of God. He does this by affirming that the work of salvation belongs solely to God. He's the one who grants salvation as an entirely free gift, and it is emphatically not on the basis of human effort. The human response of faith to this gift, far from constituting anything, anything for which a human being can take credit, excludes by its very nature any element of human boasting. And those who receive this entirely free gift of God's salvation do not remain unchanged. God recreates them so that they do the work he was planned for his people to do before the creation of the world. So with that, let's break down the text together. And then we will uh, spend some time at the end in application of these truths. The first point for today is, Christian, you were saved by grace alone through faith alone. Christian, you were saved by grace through faith alone. Where do I get that? Verse 8, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. These are like the three foundational words of the Christian good news. Salvation, grace, and faith. This first passage for us in 8 shows us, and we have to connect, our, our, connect Paul's ideas here, because this is one big, long idea, right? And we're breaking it down. So to connect Paul's big, grand idea, verse 8a here, by grace you have been saved through faith. It shows why God is able to demonstrate his gracious character throughout eternity to Paul and his readers. If you remember in verse 7, what's the purpose? Look at verse 7. It says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So if that's what he's going to do, then in verse 8 he says, By grace you've been saved through faith. Because in verse 8 he could have simply just said, You've been saved through faith, right? You've been saved through faith. Well, he repeats, however, that it is by grace. There's a reason that he does that. Redundancy with Paul is never a mistake. He does it on purpose. When he repeats himself, he means it. He said earlier, right, in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. And he says it again here, by grace you have been saved. And then he adds a thought, through faith. I guess the first question we have to ask is what grace? Well, 5 and 7 are where we see that, as we just said. It's by grace you've been saved. But what is the grace? Well, the grace is everything that he did in 4 through 7. Particularly, grace uniting them with Christ, uniting the readers with Christ, uniting you, believer, with Christ. That's grace. That's unmerited favor. That's undeserved favor. He unites Believers with Christ. He doesn't only do that, he makes them alive in Christ. He doesn't stop there. He seats believers with Christ at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And so because God unites them with the enthroned Christ by his grace, 
and will show his grace to them for eternity. Verse 7, in the coming ages. It is indeed by grace alone that they are saved. There is nothing else that accomplishes salvation except for God's grace. I guess the natural question after that would be, well, what role do I play? If I claim to be a believer today, if I say, yes, I'm a Christian, how did that come about? How did that come about? Surely I chose God. I mean, didn't I at least act in faith? I guess the question then that I would propose today is, did you act in faith or did you respond in faith? You see, God offers salvation to his human creatures abundantly and freely. But as Paul implies in Romans 5, 17, they must receive it. So there is a free offer, but it must be received. They must trust God that his free provision for them in Christ will actually accomplish their salvation. Just because it's been offered doesn't mean that it's been received. Just because there is a universal call to salvation does not mean that everyone will be saved. We deny the idea of universalism, that everyone will find their own way to God, or that in the end, everyone will be saved. That is not what Scripture teaches. You see, the way that it's defined for the Ephesian believers, when we look back in chapter 1, verse 13, is this. It means trusting the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed it. That's the idea of reception as far as the Ephesians are concerned. But the question is, what is faith? What is faith and where does it come from? I think in Paul's thinking, faith is not something that people offer to God and then God, God's grace like cooperates with that to save them. I think oftentimes when we talk about the equation of salvation, it's God's grace and our faith equals salvation. And that's not what Paul's saying. Faith, rather, is aligned with grace. And both faith and grace stand over against anything that human beings can offer God. We do not offer faith, and God uses that and cooperates with it to save us. To say that salvation comes through faith, therefore, is to further enhance the notion that it arises from the grace of God. And I think Paul makes this very explicit in his next two statements. Each of these are going to contrast with the impotence or the the fallibility, the, the weakness of human nature and activity as opposed to God's generosity and God's glory and salvation. Because he says this, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You've been saved by grace through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You see, this first statement denies that this salvation of which Paul is speaking of to his readers has arisen from the readers at all. There's nothing within the reader that can save them. Nothing. And how could it? They were dead. They were dead in transgressions and sins, as we saw in 2, verse 1. They were by nature children of wrath. Verse 3. Some people want to say that the this is not your own doing, is simply just the faith, as if the that, this, is referring to faith. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, as if the this is faith. And I would say that that's an improper reading of the Greek. Uh, you have a mismatch of gender and the words. So it can't be referring to that. Some people will say that that makes more sense, because otherwise what he's getting ready to say is redundant. Yes, it's redundant on purpose. This is not the first time he's been redundant. Seven and five. Paul's being redundant on purpose. In fact, he's going to do it again, and then he's going to do it again. Redundancy is not a bad thing. It's not something that you have to avoid, particularly when in the language it doesn't work. In fact, I think the position's even stronger when you say that the this, this is not your own doing, that this is referring to the whole statement. It's referring to the whole, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The saved, the grace, the faith, all God's work. All of it. It is all God's work. I have a bit of an extended quote from Charles Spurgeon, but I think it's of value. I want to read it. It says, It is not of ourselves in the further sense that it is not out of our original 
Excellent. Salvation comes from above. It has never evolved from within. Can eternal life be evolved from the barren ribs of death? Some dare to tell us that faith in Christ and the new birth are only the development of good things that lay hidden in us by nature. But in this, like their father, the devil, they speak of their own. Sirs, if an heir of wrath is left to be developed, if he is left on his own to grow and develop, he will become more and more fit for the place that is prepared for the devil and his angels. You may take the unregenerate man and educate him to the highest, but he remains and must forever remain dead in sin. Unless a higher power shall come in and save him from himself, grace brings into the heart an entirely foreign element. It does not improve and perpetuate. It kills and it makes alive. There is no continuity between the state of nature and the state of grace. The one is darkness and the other is light. The one is death and the other is life. Grace, when it comes to us, is like a firebrand dropped into the sea where it would certainly be quenched were it not of such a miraculous quality that it baffles the water floods and sets up its rain of fire and light even in the depths. Their salvation had to come to them as God's gift. It is not an achievement of our own doing, nor as we'll see a reward for our good deeds or works. Let's go on. Verse 9. This is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It denies that salvation comes from any works that they might accomplish. So it's not out of anything that you have done before, as if merit were concerned, you don't deserve it. You don't do anything that, uh, that is innate of who you are, that God owes you salvation. And on the same thought, it's not a result of any works. You can't accomplish it. It's not something that you can one day finish or seal see, prior to your, my conversion, the ruler of the realm of the air, Satan, was powerfully at work in them. If we leave verses 1 through 3 out of this entire thought, then this doesn't make sense. But if we remember what our prior state was, where we started, all of this makes sense. Because before, we followed the ruler of the realm of the air. He was powerfully at work within us. And we follow the cravings of our fallen flesh and mind. Accomplishing our own salvation, therefore, was impossible. It was impossible. The nature of Satan is to be opposed to anything that is of God, right? That's who he is. He is the deceiver. Everything that God is, he is against. So if we are with walking with Satan because he is powerfully at work in this place and we do what he wants and we're submitting to him because we are slaves to our flesh to sin and to death how how do you have anything like salvation on your mind because it is the farthest thing from what Satan is concerned about God's very purpose of arranging salvation as his accomplishment alone was that no one might boast. We see this play out incredibly significantly in Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5 and dealing with the faith of Abraham. I encourage you to go back and read verses, or chapter 4 and 5 of Romans this week as you see the discussion, the, the argument played out by Paul of how was Abraham saved? How did he attain righteousness? We see that his faith was credited to him as righteousness, right? But it is a gift of God. We see that even for Abraham in the Old Testament, the righteousness that Abraham received was of God, was from God, was God's accomplishment in Abraham. Check out Romans 4 through 5. And so it almost seems that if this faith is of ourselves, but before we get that, I want to put that to bed and turn our attention to Romans chapter 12. Look with me in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. 
says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It's not in the point of the passage, but it's hard to miss nonetheless. Faith is assigned by God. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I have another long quote, I apologize, from Spurgeon. But listen to this. It's from the first desire after it to the full reception of it by faith. It is evermore of the Lord alone and not of ourselves. The man believes, but that belief is only one result among many of the implantation of divine life within the man's soul by God himself. Even the very will, thus to be saved by grace, is not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God. And there lies the stress of the question. A man ought to believe in Jesus. It is his duty to receive him, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation for sins. But man will not believe in Jesus. He prefers anything to faith in his Redeemer. Unless the Spirit of God convinces the judgment and constrains the will, man has no heart to believe in Jesus unto eternal life. I ask any saved man to look back upon his own conversion and explain how it came about. You turned to Christ and believed in his name. These were your own acts and deeds. But what caused you thus to turn? What sacred force was that which turned you from sin to righteousness? Uh, do you attribute this singular renewal to the existence of a something better in you than has been yet discovered in your unconverted neighbor? No. You confess that you might have been what he is now if it had not been that there was a potent something which touched the spring of your will, enlightened your understanding, and guided you to the foot of the cross. Gratefully, we confess the fact it must be so. Salvation by grace through faith is not of ourselves, and none of us would dream of taking any honor to ourselves from our conversion or from any gracious effect which has flowed from the first divine cause. Guys, God gives us grace and God gives us faith. The faith to accept the gift, the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, as Paul would say to the Ephesians, comes from God. Jonathan Edwards, famous for his uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon, says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. We bring nothing to the table, not even our faith. Our faith is a gift of God. And some of you might be asking, so why does Scripture tell us to exercise faith or to, to use faith? I mean, in, even in chapter 6 here, and in, I guess a year and a half, um, we're going to see Paul tell us to take up the shield of faith as if it is something that we can muster on our own. So, uh, so how do we reconcile that? I would say this. Salvation and faith, although in one sense accomplished gifts of God for the believer, they must nevertheless be constantly appropriated, especially in light of the present onslaught of evil. We've talked about several weeks ago the idea of us being pitted against the forces of this world, right? That there is a battle going on right now, and that, yes, believer, you do have an enemy. His name is Satan. And he wants nothing but to destroy you, your witness, and everything that you stand for, for Christ. In light of that, how do we use what we have? Yes, salvation, yes, faith is in one sense accomplished. If you're a believer, you've been saved. Verse 8 says, for by grace, you've been saved. You have been saved. It's done. Yes, it's an ongoing work as we talk about, but it's accomplished. You've been sealed. The down payment of the Holy Spirit is on your life. How then do we fight what's going on right now? 
Salvation, faith, has to be appropriated for us. We have to use what God gives us. It's not something that we generated. It's not something that we made on our own, but it is something that we use. So when Scripture talks about using our faith, when it talks about exercising faith, it's about using the good gifts that God has given us. It's not about making more. We can't. You can't make more faith. So how do you grow in faith? We're going to talk about that. First of all, use what you have. God has given you your faith, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. So if he has apportioned a certain amount to you, do you think that that's a good amount? Well, if God is for us, then I would say yes. And indeed he is. Let's look again at Romans chapter 4. Speaking of Abraham, that we talked about earlier. It says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. This isn't talking about uh, Sarah getting pregnant and having Isaac. No unbelief made him waver. Hear these words. No unbelief made him waver. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his body. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promise. Ultimately, I think regarding salvation, Scripture points to faith as a response to what God has done in His grace as faith is granted to us, and then faith is exercised. So yes, you've been saved by grace through faith. The faith is not yours. The faith even is a gift of God, and you exercise it. It's a response to what He has done. And so salvation ultimately is God's gift. John Stott would say that Christians are always uncomfortable in the presence of pride, for they sense its incongruity. We shall not be able to strut around heaven like peacocks. Heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ and the praises of God. There will indeed be display in heaven, but not self-display, however. Rather, a display of the incomparable wealth of God's grace, mercy, and kindness through Jesus Christ. So we would do well to remember that in this realm today. And put our feathers away. And there's no strutting for us to do. Everything that we are is because of Christ. And everything that we are as believers is because of his gracious work in our lives. So, you've been saved by grace through faith. Now most would imagine that by now Paul has made his point and is ready to pass on to another topic, but not Paul. If there were any questions or doubts left, he goes on so that there is no possibility of misunderstanding. Christian, you are his workmanship. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This passage for us performs, I think, three functions. The first is it gives the reason why Paul can say that salvation in its entirety is a gift of God. And I think it's because God creates Paul and his readers anew. The salvation of Paul and his readers is entirely God's gift because they are God's creation. When we look at this idea of workmanship in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, the, the word workmanship can mean artifact, poem, literary production, and prose, as well as simply what is done. It is something that is, is done. But word studies are dangerous, okay? You can't just take a word and look at the other uses and say, well, I like this one, so I'm going to say that it means this. That's not how language works. Uh, that's not how Greek works. It's not how Hebrew works. It's, believe it or not, it's also not how English works, Okay. Um, when I say I would like to get a pug, I do not mean I would like to get a golden retriever. Okay, I mean a pug. Yes, pug, root word is probably dog, but you can't pick any other dog. When I say pug, I mean pug. Make sense? Same here. We can't simply say, oh, well, we are his poem. No, no, we are not his poem, all right? We are not his what is done. That, that's not how it works. The only other use in Paul or for the entire New Testament, for that matter, refers to the works of God at creation. When we see workmanship, yes, it has a different root that is 
can be, you know, broken up into different words if that's what you mean, but that's not what Paul means. That's not what God means. When he writes through Paul here, he's saying that these work that you are, you are my workmanship. I'm using the same language that when I talk about God at creation in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, that we see God acting at the beginning of time and creating the world. So this creation is not some artistic flourish of God. You're not simply just a a pot that he's making and it's nice. This is recreation from the beginning of time. And we'll see this even firmly, or more firmly, I believe, in the next two clauses. Um, just, he leaves no room for doubt. So when we look at our text, it has already been a resurrection from the dead. We saw that right, right? He, he made us alive in Christ. It's been a resurrection from the dead. It's a liberation from slavery. We are no longer enslaved to the prince of the power of the air that is at work in the present realm, right? And... It's been a rescue from condemnation. We are no longer held responsible for the sins that we have committed. Christ is our propitiation. He has absorbed all of the wrath due us for our, 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 our sin. And redeeming believers, God pays the price through Jesus Christ in accepting upon himself the wrath due our sin. So we are no longer condemned. And each of these declares that the work is God's. For dead people cannot bring themselves to life again, nor can captives and condemned people free themselves. But now, to put it beyond the slightest shadow of doubt, salvation is creation. It's recreation. It's a new creation. And creation language is nonsense unless there is a creator. Self-creation is a patent contradiction in terms. You hear about the idea of a self-made man, right? Self-made men are as someone who pulls themselves up by their bootstraps. They have nothing in life, but they make a way, and they excel in life, right? That is a self-made man. Somebody created him. You don't hear of a self-created person. There's not one human amongst us that was their own originator. Creation demands someone else's work. It cannot be our own. Calvin says then, you see then that this word create is enough to stop the mouths and put away the cackling of such as boast of having any merit. For when they say so, they presuppose that they were their own creators. The idea that we are new creations demands our salvation being a gift of God. But he doesn't stop there in just his phrasing. It's not this, just this idea of workmanship, of being created in Christ Jesus, he places the pronoun his, his workmanship, first in the clause, in order to intentionally emphasize God's work. So, for instance, if we listen to the great Greek expositor Yoda, his work we are. Right? All right. His work we are. That's, in, in Greek, if we're going to literally render, uh, render it the, the way that he places it, It's his work, we are, created in Christ Jesus. The emphasis is on his work, not us. Now the danger in our English is for we. We are his workmanship. And that gives to me an air of, look at me, I'm a work of God. Isn't it beautiful? Right? That's what it sounds like to me. When we take it as it is, his work, we are, it reminds me of walking into uh, galleries of, of, of potters, of painters. You walk into a gallery, and what is prominent is the artist. All of this creation that he has made surrounds you, but you're not asking, oh, what is that? Is that a, is that a cup? Is that a, is that a jug? Is that a, is that a landscape? You're not asking that. The question you're asking is, who painted this? Who created that? When you walk into a gallery, it's not a question of what is the creation, it's a who is the creator. We are his workmanship. He wants to emphasize that the refashioning of people who were once dead in transgressions and sins, and by nature, children of wrath, into spiritually alive people, victorious over the evil cosmic powers, ranged against them is entirely a work of God. Do you get it yet? <laughs> it's entirely a work of 
of God. And think about the massive shift that has just occurred in verses 1 through 3 through 4 through 10. The massive shift in the placement of human beings, the hope that we would have, is huge. God has taken a people who were once dead in transgressions, sin, and were by nature children of wrath. That means they were rebels against himself. Into He has transformed them. He has refashioned them. He has recreated them into spiritually alive people, victorious over the evil cosmic powers. And it is entirely his work. I love this quote from Calvin. He says, What remains now for free will if all the good works which proceed from us are acknowledged to have been the gifts of the Spirit of God? Let godly readers weigh carefully the apostles' words. He does not say that we are assisted by God. He does not say that the will is prepared and it is left to run by its own strength. He does not even say that the power of choosing a right is bestowed upon us and that we are afterwards left to make our own choice. Such is the idle talk in which those persons who do their utmost to undervalue the grace of God are accustomed to indulge. But the apostle affirms that we are God's work and that everything good in us is his creation, by which he means that the whole man is formed by his hand to be good. It is not the mere power of choosing right or some indescribable kind of preparation or even assistance, but the right will itself, which is his workmanship. Otherwise, Paul's argument would have no force. He means to prove that man does not in any way procure salvation for himself, but obtains it as a free gift from God. The proof is that man is nothing but by divine grace. Whoever then makes the very smallest claim for man apart from the grace of God allows him to that extent ability to procure salvation. His work we are. The second thing that I think verse 10 does for us is that by introducing this theme, it foreshadows the motif of the new creation that will play such an important role in the next section. And if you've been with us in Ephesians, this is not the first time that he's spoken to where we're getting ready to head next week. Next week, we get kind of a, a big shift, uh, not necessarily in direction, but at least in content, as we begin to explore again the idea of this creation of the new race, right? So earlier in chapter 1, specifically, we saw this pop up the first time, and this would be the second time, that the Jews and the Gentiles are now united into the people of God, right? We saw that the Jews received it first, but now God has brought salvation to the Gentiles as well. Why is that important in verse 10? Well, I, I think uh, a, a common piece with, with Paul, a common thing with him at least, uh, you can see this in Galatians 6.15 and 2 Corinthians 5.17, uh, is that, and it even plays out in Colossians 3, is that the Christ is the agent of the original creation. You, you see in these other passages I was talking about, we'll talk about those probably at home gathering, you see in these other passages that Christ is, is named really as the agent of the original creation. When we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? God. Uh, we rightly would believe in a Trinitarian God, right? But nonetheless, the Old Testament leaves us to imagine that it is at least the Godhead, right? Now, we see bits and pieces of Trinitarian language in there uh, when he says, let us make man like us, right? The plural. We see the idea of the Holy Spirit hovering over the water, so we see Trinitarian language there, but we don't necessarily know who's kind of pulling the strings out of the, the, the three. In the New Testament, in several places, we see that Christ is kind of the main agent of creation, the original creation. We see this in John chapter 1, and we see that the Word, meaning Jesus, is the one who really kind of did most of the origination of creation. But Paul picks up in it several places too, in Galatians, 2 Corinthians, and then in Colossians 3, that Christ is the agent of the original creation. And what's important here is that in Ephesians, Christ is the agent of a new creation. In verse 15, we're going to see that. We see it here in, in 10. We were created in Christ Jesus. It's a recreation, a renewal. But we see not just as it for the individual, but it is for the race of man as well. So I, I would contend that verse 10 is speaking specifically to individual believers, right? We are, the plural, but you, believer, are a new creation. And as a new creation, we are being reformatted together as a new race together. 
that we're going to see in 15. So in 10, he's setting up this idea again of a new race, a new creation. You see, Christ, as we're going to see, is creating in himself one new man in place of the two, in place of Adam and Christ. He's making peace. He's reconciling. He is breaking down the wall of hostility. He is preaching peace. He's preaching peace and reconciliation to rebels, rebels such as us. And so I think verse 10 introduces a, an enormous theme for us going forward uh, that we've already seen again in, in chapter 1 of this new creation being a, not just a new creation, but a new race, God's people. Moving on, the third thing I think verse 10 does for us is it brings this section, 1 through 10, to a fitting close by implicitly contrasting the way Paul's readers used to walk in 2-2 and the way that both he and they now walk thanks to God's gracious, saving work. It almost feels as if it's like a sideways glance at a common misunderstanding of Paul. Uh, if you are familiar with the New Testament, a lot of times the book of Galatians gets pitted against the book of James. Uh, in fact, many people who uh, would not claim to be believers would say, the Bible contradicts itself. It contradicts itself all over the place. Just look at Galatians. I thought you were saved by grace. And then in James, you have to do all these works. That's a contradiction and, and theme. No, no, not at all. It is reconciled together, as we're going to explore right here. But Paul is the one who wrote Galatians. All right? He didn't write James. James wrote James. Paul writes Galatians. He's the one that gets accused of being about grace, right? Anti-law. It's all about grace. Well, it just feels like a sideways kind of glance at him when he says that he now asserts that good will or good works rather are both integral to the existence of the people of God, and he's created them for these good works. God has created them for these works, and they themselves are the products of God's gracious initiative on behalf of his people. You see, we were created for the purpose of good works. The point is incredibly clear. In verse 10, we were created to walk in good works. Originally, verse 2-2, two, two, we walked according to what? Our evil desires and our flesh. Now we walk according to the works that God prepared for us in advance to do. God intended for those whom he has saved by his abundant grace to live in the way that is later described in the rest of the book. And starting in chapter 4, verse 1, going through 6.20, those are the good works. How do we live in relationships? How do we live in marriage? How do we live in uh, church community? How do we live amongst those who are lost? Everything that is wrapped up in the good works that have been prepared for us in advance, he begins to just lay out over the next several chapters, starting in chapter 4. But why? Why are these works so important? Why are these works prepared for us? Why do we have to walk in them? Why can't we just kind of assert ourselves or just try our best? Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So don't miss what, what Paul's saying here. He just got done saying in like eight different ways that salvation is not of ourselves. There's nothing that we do. There's nothing that we are, something that we deserve salvation. There's nothing that we can do. In fact, on top of that, there's nothing that we can like accomplish going forward. Some of you may wonder why the Roman Catholic Church is so far apart from everything else in Christianity. Why do we set ourselves up against that? Because that is a largely works-based religion. Works earn salvation. In fact, works earn salvation to the point where you don't know if you've done enough works to be saved. And you have to have people down, still on earth do works for you when you're dead to help get you to salvation. It is by faith alone, not works. But here it seems that Paul is saying that we should do works. And indeed we should. But the question is why? What are the works accomplished? The works don't accomplish anything in regards to salvation. The works accomplish everything in regards to showing who we are. Now think about the contrast. Is God any less God whether he saved people or not? No. Wouldn't God still be God if the cross didn't happen? Yeah. 
The works of God are not necessary for him being who he is. What are the works of God necessary for? Displaying who he is. The same is true of us. When we become redeemed by God, we go about in good works because we want to display who we are. We are his children. Reading the context of John 15, starting in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So even though works are necessary in showing and displaying who we are, he still, Paul, keeps the emphasis on God's gracious initiative because he doesn't just say to walk in good works. How are these good works done? How are they given to us? Paul speaks of God preparing beforehand the works in which he intended his people to walk. It's not just good works that they do. It's good works that they do because he planned them. The only other New Testament use of these works, this preparation idea, is God's preparation of a people for glory. In Romans chapter 9, verse 23. In Romans chapter 9, verse 23, he speaks of God preparing vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And the idea is that God is preparing specific people for glory. For whose glory? God's glory. That's the only other reference to the same language that he's using here in Ephesians chapter 2. The same preparation of a people for glory in Romans 9 is the same preparation of good works that God has done for believers. And so the good works that God's people will do, therefore, have all been planned since the beginning of the world. Just as the blessing of God's people and his plan for the universe were carefully determined beforehand. And so therefore, even when believers walk worthily of the calling with which they were called, they have nothing to boast about before God. And this, too, God took the initiative by carefully preparing these good works before the foundation of the world. Don't miss the beauty of our new walk. It's not to be a struggle of obedience, guys. If you're a believer here today, it's not supposed to be a struggle of obedience. It's true freedom. It's freedom that we had never dreamed we'd have. We no longer walk in sin according to the standards of the world and the prince of the demonic realm. But instead we walk in a way carefully planned by the creator for his creation from a time before the world began. So, applications. Christians, what do we do with this? That's that's the gospel. God chose us chapter one he planned out our redemption he accomplished it and he planned new works for us as new creations so how do we respond to that well kind of the cheat one which we're not gonna spend any time in chapter four five and six that's the application for what he's talking about right now okay that notwithstanding which we'll get to i guess next year um the first thing i'll have in your notes uh no god no god christian you must no, God. Now, some of this might bristle you a little bit with me using language like you must. I'm using language like you must because good works were prepared for you to walk in. I'm trying to use the language that Paul uses. Christians, you must, I must, we must know God. We started earlier with this today, to know his character, to know who he is, to know what he has done. I hope that maybe after today you can answer some of those questions. What do you know about God? It's not just what he's done, it's who he is. His character has been displayed through what he's done. The second thing is to display grace. 
I would ask, how have you seen the unmerited favor of God in your life? When you're trying to apply this text to your life, a question I would ask is, how have you seen the unmerited favor of God in your life? When I look at my life and asking that question, I easily, very quickly say several things. Say my wife, my kids, my family, my brother, my parents, my pastor, brother, elder guy, my church family. Uh, I would say mercy from the due consequences of my sin. Uh, grace to overcome sin. I'd say faithfulness and God's provision in my life. I'd even say comfort in life. And I would capitalize it all with coffee, right? <laughs> God has been good to me. His kindness is on display in my life. It doesn't mean that everything's going well, but I see God's kindness and mercy and grace in my life, unmerited favor, things that I don't deserve in my life, even when a relationship might not be going as well as I'd like it. Even when I'm not overcoming sin, I'm being convicted by it. That is God's grace in my life. And so God's kindness is on display in my life. And so my question to you is, how do you display the kindness of God? We talk about appropriating salvation. We talk about appropriating that faith that is given to us. How do you display what is given to you? So for instance, how do you handle your spouse when they break your trust? Are you merciful? Are you kind? Are you faithful to them? Now, the idea of renovation of our uh, identity being a family member. Do you treat your spouse as a family member of God? Or do you get harsh with them? Do you not love them? Do you, are you not patient with them? Let's talk about our kids. How do you handle kids that are selfish and care only about themselves? I would say, are you patient? Are you loving them as you love yourself? Are you even laying down your life for them? Our identity as a servant, right? I would say, how do you handle confrontation? I mean, we're specifically talking about the kindness of God to reveal sin in our lives, whether that be, well, and I guess confrontation, specifically from another believer, but also definitely from the Word. I would say, is humility your reaction, or does pride rear its ugly head? We're supposed to be worshipers, right? That's our identity. We're worshipers of God. When he reveals sin in our life, we react with humility and say, yes, God, thank you. Thank you for displaying this in my life. Otherwise, I would continue in this sin, and it is destructive to me, my family, my church, and it does not display the kindness of you. I would say, how do you handle your Bible? One of the greatest kindnesses of God to us is his revelation of himself. Your identity as a learner. How are you handling the Word of God? A church, you know, this is not just applications for us individually, but renovation. How do we display kindness of God? Our church should look kind. Renovation should be a place of kindness where we are concerned with others first. How does that play out on Sunday mornings? How does that play out in your home gatherings? How do you represent renovation at your jobs? So we should display grace. The third thing, we should walk in good works. Christian, you must walk in good works. You're a new creation. You were recreated specifically for the task of walking in good works. Remember here, the key to recreation is the unification with Christ, the raising with Christ, and the seating with Christ. You don't do this alone. And the key for this recreation, I'm going to repeat it, the key for this idea of being created again is that we were created in Christ. How? We were unified with him, we were raised with him, and we were seated with him. You do not do this alone. So what does that mean for you? What does it mean for us? We can forgive because he loved us first. We can love because He forgave everything. We can suffer because He bore the cross. You can lead because He prepared it for you. You can read because He illuminates. You can fight because He strengthens. You can deny yourself because He is everything. This is the gospel. It changes everything. You can walk in good works. And finally, Christian, you must treasure Jesus. You must 
treasure Jesus? So did you, my big question today is, do you treasure Jesus? And not for what he's done alone, but for who he is. I, I don't want to say don't love him for what he's done. It is glorious. It is the greatest display of glory in the universe. But can you love God for who he is? Can you treasure Jesus because of his character? And this is hard, not just in our culture, not just in American culture that rewards performance, but even just in human experience. I think often worth is attributed to actions. Or value is attributed to actions. And for instance, how am I evaluated as a husband, as a father, as an elder? My worth seems inevitably tied to my performance. And the struggle to love based on performance and not position is very real. Uh, we should love our spouses because of their position, because we committed to them, because we covenanted with them. We should love our children because they're our, our offspring. We should love people because they're made in the image of God, not because of what they do. But it's very, very easy to struggle with that and base our love off performance and not position. And so I want to close here today by pondering salvation specifically. And try to track with me through this. A perspective shift I think would be valuable. I think we began this morning with salvation, right? Salvation, grace, faith. And we concluded with it. But I think there's a perspective shift that we're missing. And I hope that it will help us love Jesus and treasure him truly. I think that when most of us think of salvation, we think of forgiveness of sins. And now, I'm allowed in heaven. Is it something to that effect? That's typically what comes to the front of my mind. When I ask people, what does it mean to be saved? I mean, my sins have been forgiven, and Jesus will take me to heaven, right? I think we need to shift our thinking. Not that that's wrong at all. It's not wrong at all, okay? But I think that leads to the performance-based thing. Let's talk about this. Salvation, I would contend, is first deliverance. I think first and foremost, salvation is about deliverance. Think back to when, believer, if you were saved, um, think back to your salvation. What were you concerned about specifically? Was it primarily about having your sins forgiven? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's huge. It's a recognition of what sin is and who you've offended. Or was maybe another pressing idea in your mind, deliverance from wrath. Not just being allowed into heaven, but not being punished for sin. The fact that Christ is our propitiation put forth by God to absorb all the wrath do our sins. I think primarily, first, our salvation should be about deliverance. We've been justified. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back. Our, the blood has covered us. That's salvation, first and foremost. We've been delivered from wrath. And so my question was, why? Why did he deliver us? I think about the, the nature of wrath. Wrath happens because something was offended, right? The wrath of God was coming upon your, my life because of the sin that we walked in. Why did he save us from that? Why did he deliver us? I mean, we look at our text and we've been saved by grace through faith. And grace is certainly much more palatable, I think, in our Christian American culture when in conjunction with forgiveness and restoration. Because I think even the most proud person can recognize broken relationships. And I think that they can value and desire restoration of that relationship, even without having to admit much fault. You can maintain your pride in that sense. But I think grace is big, grace is mighty, grace is powerful when it is unmerited favor in the deliverance from wrath. But we deserved wrath. It's not something that we just stumbled upon. It's not something that we just had a little bit of. We deserved wrath, and he delivered us from it. This makes grace glorious. I think the glory of God the Father in preparing and choosing us for redemption, the Son in executing it on the cross and bearing the penalty in his flesh, and the Spirit in empowering and sealing our redemption is a great God at work in action. But where did it come from? Who he is. In love, he predestined you. In love. He loves you. He delivered you because he loves you. This is a great God in character. He's holy. He is a holy 
God. His acts are simply displaying who he has been and will always be. The fact that a holy God delivered people that were deserving of wrath is a great God. It's a great God. And why did he do it? Because he loves us. And so my encouragement to you today would be to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment. Treasure Jesus. Treasure him as you walk in the good works that he's carefully planned for you. And today, if you would not claim to be a follower of Christ, if you would not place your trust in him for salvation, and this sounds good to you, but you're stuck with the question of, how do I receive Christ? How do I have faith? You said I can't generate faith. What do I do? Ask God for it. Ask God for it. Ask God for faith. Ask God for faith to believe in his son that he sent. Ask God for faith to understand the mystery of salvation in humans. Pray to God. You may not know him yet, but you can. Pray to God and ask for faith that he would save you or that he would continue to love you. If you have questions about that, please, I encourage you to talk to me after, after service or really any other members at Renovation. I would love to talk with you about these things. Um, I want to conclude with prayer. And uh, we're going to sing a song that I hope uh, will resonate a little more deeply as we think about what we once were and to who God has recreated us to be. And as we worship together, um, I, I hope that it resonates deeply in your soul. Let's pray, and uh, the band will come forward. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Father, your kindness is just on display everywhere. And Father, we, we saw even last week that your kindness leads us to repentance. And Father, as we look at the sin in our life, Father, when we did not know you, you brought us to repentance. Your kindness brought us to repentance. We didn't decide to just repent. But Father, you showed us our sin. Father, you showed us the, the destiny that we had apart from you. And Father, your kindness led us to repentance. And Father, now we stand in front of you, no longer condemned, but Father, loved. Loved sons and daughters of the King, seated at the right hand of you. Father, in the throne room with you forever. And Father, I pray that you would continue to help us treasure Jesus. Father, the work that you did through him is majestic, is mighty, is glorious. But Father, we recognize that that wasn't just something you decided to do. Father, it's a display of who you are and your character. And God, we love you for who you are, not just what you've done. Father, we thank you for all that you have done. Father, we're grateful to see your work in our lives and in our church. But Father, we pray that you would help us fall in love with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.